Hey y'all, it's your favorite host, and I wanted to just pop in here to say, uh, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier, which gives you access to the Discord, and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that, uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier, an $8 tier, uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad-free. Um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro-RPGs that I create in the future. Yeah, so again, uh, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, if you'd like to give additional support, that's one way to do it. Another great way to do it is just, you know, go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast, subscribe, uh, follow, leave a review if you can. Um, those things really help gain visibility for the show, and it is always greatly appreciated. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, and back to the episode. Welcome to the Secret Nerd Podcast, where we think everyone should play tabletop RPGs and give you some reasons why. With me tonight, I am very excited for this next guest. Uh, he is a game designer, a uh, game developer, a cultural and sensitivity consultant, as well as a former archaeologist. Uh, yeah, if you would like to introduce yourself. Hey there. Yeah, my name is Daniel Kwan. I, I am all of those things, a game designer, <laughs> developer, cultural and sensitivity consultant, uh, retired archaeologist and uh podcast or any award-winning yes pod, of course yeah how, how do i forget that well, you know it's you know what we're, we're on a podcast so sometimes you forget it's just like <laughs> we're, we're, yeah of course we're, we're on a podcast yeah that is so cool i mean it, it's i am interested um in how you go from archaeology which is like something people kind of set their lives up to be a career into retired <laughs> at so young but um where I always like to start is like, how did you get into nerd stuff in general? Oh, you know what? Nobody's ever asked me that question. Awesome. People always ask me like, oh, how did you get into TTRPGs? But nobody ever asked me, how do you get into nerd stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, it all starts there, right? Yeah. You know what? It's uh, it's funny. My uh, parents were never really into letting us um, like play video games and stuff growing up. Yeah. Um, it was always like external family members, like my <laughs> uncle getting us a Game Boy, getting us the N64. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I got really into tabletop RPGs when I was 11 years old, and my mother signed me up for a summer camp at a museum here in Toronto mm. uh, called the Royal Ontario Museum. And they had a summer camp that was Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And I had none, we had no idea what this was. <laughs> so she signed my brother and I up. And I fully thought I was going to like, we're going to like make fake swords and I'm going to get to hit my brother and it's <laughs> yeah. going to be great. Um, um, and uh, showed up and it was this Dungeons and Dragons thing. Yeah. And we played Dungeons and Dragons 
inside the museum all day surrounded by artifacts and fossils and stuff. And that just lit a spark in me. And it was actually during that camp that we we went behind the scenes and I met an archaeologist named uh, Dr. Robert Mason. Uh, You can actually find him on Twitter. It's uh, RBJ Mason on Twitter. Yeah, Uh, I'm going to confirm that. But (laughs) I met this guy and he's this like British dude, big beard, got tattoos. Yeah. uh, And is really into weapons <laughs> and you know i got to hold weapons and stuff and uh i was like i want to be him yeah i want to be him and so that's kind of what got me into the archaeology and kind of got me into kind of geekdom it was that camp got me into like tabletop wargaming got into warhammer wow. um my uh, shortly before that my uh my uncle had bought me a copy of the hobbit okay and uh so I had kind of started getting into that. Um, after that, I got really into R.A. Salvatore's books. Yeah, and, um, that's a good one. And then it just kind of spiraled from there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my introduction to, to nerddom was really from like family members trying to get my parents to let us have entertainment. <laughs> and my mom signing me up for a summer camp where she had no idea what it was yeah so that was like a every day multiple days a week type of thing or you said yeah, it was, it was like a on... two two weeks monday to friday wow yeah, yeah that would be um incredible as a kid what what edition was that when you were 11 years old uh that one was a third edition third edition okay yes yeah, third edition yeah so you know when you were that young were you able to like grasp a lot of that those concepts and like because people talk about third edition as it being like very chunky and you know there's tons of feats and you have to like follow the correct feet tree and all that stuff did they kind of i, lead I you loved that? it yeah i loved oh, that's it awesome. yeah. it's third edition 3.5 or my bread and butter it's still like it's still the set it's still the uh edition that i want to play most yeah you know it's always like oh if i had a choice i would pick 3.5 yeah. I have so many books. Um, <laughs> I would love to play through it, or just Pathfinder first edition. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I just prefer all those as the same thing. Um, but it, m- most of my groups, they just want to play fifth edition or, or indie games. So I haven't gotten to play 3.5 in a really long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was that. And then, of course, you know, later on, I experimented with other editions, but I got my start in third edition. No, that's awesome. I, I, I agree. I think I really do enjoy, I did enjoy, I should say, um, playing 3.5. That was the first edition I ever played. And it was, there's something to it. I think, you know, when you're, you get into like the creativity of it and I really enjoy the crunch too. You know what I mean? Yeah. I enjoy like trying to figure out like how to just lay as much damage down as possible. And while fifth edition is is easy to get into and and still has its its own fun there, I think it, it definitely is is a little bit different in that way. For sure. I mean, for me, it was third edition and three point five that really got me into learning math. Really got me into learning math. Really got me into just like diving into books. Uh, I'm dyslexic, so it it was like really hard growing up getting into reading and stuff. And yeah, D and D books were just like the thing that I could digest because it was like. You get you get some great art. You get your books. You get your easy to understand tables. Mm-hmm. Everything's broken down into manageable chunks. Yeah, that just worked for me. Definitely, it's uh, that's really cool. I think it's it's awesome that it brought you in and that and that it was able to do that. You know, at that age. Um, 
so when you you met uh, the archaeologist, the doctor, yeah, Robert and so Mason. like from that point on, you were like, this is what I'm doing. This is what, uh, yeah. From that point on, that was like, this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> I ended up going to that camp for like several more years. I ended awesome. up becoming uh, like a volunteer with the camp. I ended up yeah. getting hired to you know work with the camp, and then after I, I you know I got my degree, my first degree, I ended up teaching it. Um, yeah. That's and so cool. The same our funny thing is the the same archaeologist Robert Mason became like a really close friend of mine, and he actually uh, supervised my master's research. Wow! And he um, ended up being a mentor for me when I was doing my doctoral work. That's awesome. Yeah. Have you finished your PhD? I dropped out. Actually, oh, oh, yeah. yeah oh, I, I mean, it makes sense if you were retired from it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I dropped out uh, in my sixth year. Yeah. Um, wow. Like, I just a year before the pandemic and wow. I ended up work finding myself in tech. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy that I did. Obviously things worked, <laughs> worked yeah. out for me. I'm very fortunate. And, uh, but yeah, I've kind of now been leveraging my experiences with academia and archeology span and obviously traveling around in the places I've worked yeah. to kind of inform my game design. So I'm curious. Um, and before I ask you like why you left, I'm curious if this was involved because I've, you know, recently over the past, few years, five years, whatever, um, there's been a lot of talk about like museums and, you know, taking artifacts from other countries and other cultures mm-hmm. and then, you know, getting that stuff back to the people um, who they belong to essentially. Did that ever play a factor into your thinking or is that like, I mean, is that a new concept for you too when you were an archaeologist? Uh, oh, no, no, no. That was something I'm very, very aware of. I think archaeology itself is a, it's an interesting discipline because you know, there's this balance of trying to preserve the past, but mm-hmm. also understanding that certain institutions cannot be the stewards of the past and preservation to yeah. a, an archaeologist can mean something completely different from the, the cultures themselves. Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, like, as much as I wish there was an exciting story, uh, I mean, like, leaving grad school was mostly, like, massive burnout and yeah. uh, the desire to just have stable income. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> have a stable income and, you know, um, and really be able to shut off. The thing yeah. with being in academia, because I, you know, four years of undergrad, two years of a master's, and then like five years nonstop of, of like a PhD, that's that's like 11 years of school. Yeah. Um, on top of that, teaching at a museum and doing research and travel and um, is hard. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. for me, I, I wanted to be able to kind of cut off at a certain time in my day and then kind of have a life. Yeah. Um, and with the academic job market, it just, you know, the I couldn't see myself grinding at that. Yeah. Uh, with the hopes of, uh, you know, tenure and that full time non contractual labor. So, yeah, I kind of did a complete 180 and ended up in tech and. I'm really happy. Yeah. I, I well, certainly miss working at a museum though. I really yeah. do. There are a lot of complexities to it. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of bureaucracy, but I miss that environment deeply. I miss, uh, the scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something special about, especially in the setting like that, like anytime you're around a lot of really smart people who are kind of doing the same thing or, you know, adjacent things with you, uh, I think it's just, it kind of creates a special environment. Um, I've never like done that myself in, in academia, but I have worked at a place that like was very specific about how they hired people. 
And I mean, the ideas that came together, the, um, you know, just some of like the, the ways that we were able to overcome certain things, like it was just so cool to have, um, whereas in like, in, you know, a random place in the world, you can end up with like varying levels of, of, uh, of ingenuity and creativity and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, museums are different. And I had uh, a lot of different jobs at the museum. I had like a media job where I did like macro videography of of spiders, of all Mm. things. Um, I I did some weird things at the museum. I I helped deflesh a Komodo dragon skeleton. (laughs) That was probably one of the weirdest things. Uh, I I did a, I shot a, a four hour video of this like 64 year old guy taking the skin off of a swan wow and how you do that is just is yeah. absolutely wild yeah <laughs> i've seen wow. seeds of things but yeah yeah you know it's i think when you're younger you 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 think that i'm gonna do this one thing mm-hmm. that's the thing that i'm gonna do and for some people they, it works out that way for for others it doesn't and i think the one thing that i kind of learned is that you know change is kind of a part of that journey yeah and it's more interesting if you embrace it yeah that's really cool I mean, it's exciting to see, um, you know, just from the outside looking in to see kind of your your career path in, in TTRPGs has been really um, cool. When I first became aware of you, I guess I had just started, you know, I just joined Twitter last year in July. Welcome, welcome to <laughs> the thing that is Twitter. Well, yeah, gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, but, you, you know, like immediately was just like, OK, where are all of the POCs um, doing yeah. TTRPG stuff? And I forget what it was exactly, but um, something, you know, somebody posted something or retweeted you on something in the terms of like game design and things like that. And that's kind of where it started. And then um, as time went on, people continued mentioning uh, Asians Represent, um, which is a fantastic podcast. And then I met Mark Diaz Truman um, from Oh, yeah, Mark's great. Yeah. And we were talking about Avatar and he was like, Oh yeah, you know we uh, we hired Daniel Kwan as a as a consultant, and I was like, oh okay, yeah, that name sounds familiar. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just as time has gone by, I just kind of learned a little bit more and more. And then, you know, listening to the podcast, kind of jumping around like where it started, um, some of the actual play stuff, and then kind of where you guys are now. It's cool to see that journey. But I'm, you know, in your own words, like, what has that been like for you? Agents represent has been this weird really weird unexpected journey yeah really really unexpected journey we started asians represent um very stereotypically in a bubble tea shop <laughs> and uh, uh we started with like a facebook message actually yeah. agatha and i were at agatha sent me a message and was like hey i want to start a podcast i know you have some experience in this um do you want to do something and i was like you know well, yeah let's 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 get a drink and talk about it yeah um and we decided that, like, yeah, we, it would be cool to do a podcast about Asian issues in tabletop games. And I was friends with James D'Amato of the One Shot Podcast Network. Yeah. And I, I sent him a Facebook message and I was like, hey, I have this idea. Um, I've got a co host, we've got a concept. You interested? Because, like, I didn't want to go through the hosting and all that. Yeah. And, I, and, and James was just like, yes, let's talk. Yeah. And that's kind of how it started. And, we started doing once a month, then we did uh, twice a month, and then we started doing actual plays. And then the pandemic hit, and yeah. that changed everything. Mm. Um, 
and I think for the for for the better because I, I when the pandemic hit, we were like, well, we're set, we're split across two cr- countries. Some people are kind of dealing with the stress of the pandemic. What are we going to do, and how are we going to stay connected? And so we decided to start streaming. And we were like, yeah, let's just stream this and see what happens. And we were like, what are we going to do? Let's let's read Oriental Adventures live and <laughs> oh, react to it. That'll be a great idea. Um, and we did that. And Asians Represent kind of blew up. Yeah. And it became something that we were not anticipating. Yeah. Um, I was fully content with Asians Represent being a thing where I shoot the shit with my friends. And a handful of people maybe knew knew what it was. Um <laughs> And then it went to, okay, we're in the Huffington Post now. And white people are getting really, really mad at me. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know what? I started Asians Represent thinking that like I'd get like the Asian praise instead of like this like white anger. Yeah. <laughs> and no we ended up getting that. And it was like, we have a platform and we have a responsibility to do some like our best to actually make change. Mm-hmm. And so in the past two years. So during the course of the pandemic, uh, our content once again evolved into being very, very purposeful seasons yeah. rather than being reactive to what is happening. Um, we're, we're even thinking about how we want to structure like our reviews of legacy TTRPG content because we want it to be digestible, but also um, very informative at the same time. And reactions can kind of get old. Yeah. And so now with, our, you know, we just, uh, this week we're releasing episode 50. It's the 50th numbered episode, but it's like our hundredth episode. Yeah. No, I know um, that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, this is, this is what happens when you don't prepare for this sort of stuff and your numbering is all, all messed up. And so, yeah, this is episode 50 technically. Yeah. Um, but, uh, now we're hitting this like point where we're like, do we do reads anymore? do we continue to do actual plays or actual plays like a thing we want to do? Yeah. Um, obviously right now we're going to bring back Dungeons and Asians, but half of the, the main cast is, is out of commission. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, you no, know, 75% of the main cast is out of commission <laughs> right now. So uh, I'm sort of preparing uh, like a standalone series. Um, but I think the direction that I want to go is actually, I won't say scripted, but, uh, produced in a way where everybody's kind of aware of the fact that this is for entertainment and this is a show yeah. rather than we're, we're doing pure improv all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, I want it. I want everyone to feel like they're, they have agency and that they feel like the world is lived in because that is something that the audience will see. But mm. in order to do something like that, it requires a lot of, a lot of prep, uh, yeah. a lot of work. And so I, uh, I've been doing a lot of like play testing on the side and just obviously having fun with the home group. Mm-hmm. We are, uh, how, how, we're like 70 hours into a play test. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> that I wasn't expecting to go that long, but yeah. uh, there is no end in sight. So good insight for me with the, you know, return of Dungeons and Asians. Um, yeah. I need to have it nice and short. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the entire journey has been absolutely wild. We went from, this like small podcast that just kind of existed because mm-hmm. we were like, yes, yeah, it's a cool thing to do to being this incredible like weight and responsibility. Yeah. Uh, we'd have tons of people who are on our team and supporting us. And 
we became the first Asian podcasters to ever win an Ennie Award and That's the amazing. first Asian people to ever win twice. Yeah. Um, which is absolutely wild because it shows that, you know, voices of color, not just ours, but voices of color in general are super important yeah. in this space. You look at other shows like, I mean, Inner the Motherlands, Rivals mm -hmm. of Waterdeep, like all really, really important shows for what they do. Yeah. Right. They are really, really important examples to companies that this is the kind of content people want to see. And these are the kinds of faces and voices that people want to see and hear from. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, for us, it's just been like, we now have a much clearer mission and it's to put as many, you know, sort of like Asian people, like sort of up there and in front of others as possible and to try to bring about as much change as we possibly can. Yeah. And I love that. I think, I mean, just, you know, checking out some of like the more recent panels that you guys have done. Um, They're very different from the earlier episodes. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's so cool. You know, I think, I think too, like as a person, uh, a POC, but with no Asian descent whatsoever, um, I love how informative it is in the sense of like, there's a lot of things where I felt like once I learned, you know, Orientalism, or oriental yeah. was a bad word and understood a lot of that stuff. Like, you know, you, I, I started to pick up signs, but I think I never really fully internalized it until listening to y'all talk and understanding like, oh yeah, like that's a thing too. Like, you know, growing up on Kung Fu movies and, uh, you know, anime and, and all these different things that like we take for granted as, as a society at large uh, and not really understanding how, they affected people that it's interesting that you mention, you know kung fu movies yeah kung fu movies are, are such um such a like a, an interesting point of conversation for 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 pocs yeah um because if you think about it like kung fu cinema is not just for like asian people like yeah. kung fu cinema has had like a major influence on like black culture Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Giant influence, <laughs> yeah. right? Because 100%. like Kung Fu Cinema. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a whole rap group about it. Um, I'm not gonna lie, when I wrote the Book of Inner Alchemy for Candlekeep Mysteries, yeah. I only listened to Wu Tang Clan when I was nice. doing that. That's like awesome. the the entire time. Like <laughs> it would it would I would die if if Rizzo was like, yo, I I played this. I played this adventure and I love that. I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, it would be incredible. But like yeah, kung fu movies are such an uh, an interesting one because the themes of kung fu cinema mm -hmm. really united like the black and Asian communities. Oh yeah, because like the whole thing about these classic kung fu movies that you see in like the Grand House Cinema and all that are like what are, what are the themes that that people really like sort of vibed with? Right, resistance against oppression, yeah, uh, the defiance against injustice, uh, self improvement, and and like most of all, like cultural expression at a time yeah. when, you know, white America and white Canada are, are oppressing communities of color and trying to get them to assimilate. Yeah. And now you're seeing these movies where the, there's these badass people who are just literally being themselves and fighting against the government, fighting against oppressor, oppressors. So it's like Kung Fu movies are interesting because they kind of transcend just that sort of Chinese experience. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm that was like when I was a kid, Bruce Lee was my hero. You know what I mean? Like Bruce Lee uh, and Kareem Abdul Jabbar fought in a movie. Yeah. How absolutely wild is that? Yeah. And then he beat Chuck Norris's ass. And he beat Chuck uh, Norris. <laughs> ripped out all that hair. Yeah. Uh it's I mean, it's just so good. And then I mean, even more recently, uh, I love Donnie Yen um and the whole Ip Man series. And Ip Man four was really impactful for me too. In that same sense of like, you know, being they're literally being treated like shit in America, yep. like dealing with people who are trying to conform, like you're talking about, and then like, well, we're not going to conform in this way, and and I mean, dealing with the military and, and military police and all that. It was just, uh, yeah, some of that stuff it, is just so incredible. Ip Man Four is a great movie about racism. Yeah, it really That's is, a, and not only against Chinese people, but also. Chinese people being racist. Yeah. Because a core core theme of that was like, Bruce Lee can't be teaching our martial arts to non-Chinese. Yeah. Right? And um, that this the, the whole conversation about like Kung Fu cinema and like the, the Asian and sort of black communities, um, that's actually a, a topic that I desperately want to do for Asians represent. Yeah. Um, I have to put together the right panelist, but it is... If we're – Steve and I kind of made the call of if we're ever going to have people who aren't who, – who don't identify as Asian on the podcast, yeah, that will be the episode to do it. Yeah. Um, or at least break our our streak because this is an important thematic episode. Yeah. Um, so that that's like one that is constantly on my mind yeah. because I think it's an important conversation to have. Yeah, definitely. I mean there's so many uh... – intersections there so uh, but yeah i think i think you know it's just so incredible and so yeah it's it's easy kind of back to my original point like it's easy when we're younger to just be absorbed in it right and to um admire it and to appreciate it without really looking too deep into it um and it's not until we're older or somebody points it out to us that we realize and you know maybe not so much in kung fu movies but in just a lot of stuff that you know how many people were playing oriental adventures when it came out, I own both. Not- <laughs> I, I own both versions of it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's you know, and people were just and not thinking at all about it and what it meant. And and yeah, it really does. It really does. This your show really helped me kind of look at stuff a little bit more critically when it came to that. Um, and yeah, I love and I hope that you know other people are. I'm sure they are. Obviously, you guys are an award-winning podcast, but like, you know, experiencing that same thing of just like, oh yeah, like even though this isn't who I am, um, I can still listen to it, enjoy it and learn something from it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's what, that's what the show is. It's not just for Asian people. It's for everybody. It's, it's for everybody to learn. I mean, our discord server is predominantly Asian, but there are a lot of non-Asian people in there who are just a part of the community, right? Yeah. Because the whole idea is not like to segregate ourselves. Right. The, the, the whole point of Asians Represent is to provide a platform for people in the Asian community to speak and be heard. Yeah. But we want everybody to listen. Yeah. Right? We don't want to be talking about It Man 4. We don't want to be the old Kung Fu masters who don't want anyone else to learn our Kung Fu. <laughs> yeah. Right? We want to be Bruce Lee. We want to be teaching everybody, right? We want everybody to respect us. Yeah, uh, and treat us as equals, and you know, in order to do that, we need to make ourselves available to everyone. Um, yeah, well, and I yeah. think too in this, you know, when we're talking about like present time, right? 
yes, the Avatar Legends is a huge, huge property, but it's not the only property that I'm sure people are going to be using that um, either came from or de- depicts Asian cultures. And um, not just Asians, like a- Avatar depicts like indigenous cultures as yeah. well. Um, the Avatar is an interesting thing because uh, on one end it was created by two white dudes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but everybody's like, Avatar is like really good. And it's like, it's the standard. Um, not even talking about the RPG. I'm just talking about the show. Right. Um, but then, you, you know, it's it's certainly got its w- weird flaws. Yeah. And then it just like takes these things and kind of mashes them up. Um, yeah. but, uh, I mean, even in the, the naming and some of the nations is inconsistent too with certain cultures. Yeah. Um, it's a step and it's a great way for people to have a conversation about these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think too, what, what your show also does is shows how many, how many people, how many Asians out there are working on these games, are consulting, um, creating things like that. Like, the, the list of, of folks who do amazing stuff with TTRPGs that have been on the show um, is incredible. And I think it just helps kind of, like you said, shine a spotlight on those uh, folks to be like, hey, you know, we're out here. So if you're going to – if for whatever reason you decide to do this project that goes down the path of writing an Asian game when you're not Asian – like talk to these people, yeah, or talk to these people, or listen, <laughs> or listen to the podcast, yeah. and, and maybe think, don't do it. <laughs> maybe don't even do it, right? And think about like why are you doing this? That's the thing yeah. we always bring up is like why are you doing this? Um, yeah. Episode forty nine, and yeah, yeah, and it's just like we're not here to stop people from doing things. Right. We just want people to be more conscious about what they're doing and their intentions behind it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots of Asian stories out there that have non-Asian voices behind them that we all praise. Um, yeah. A huge sort of cinematic moment was the the two two films in the Raid series. Have you seen those? Mm, uh, yes. The, yeah, yeah. The Raid was directed by a white dude. Yeah. It's directed by a white dude. Um, but, you know, he was in Indonesia shooting documentaries and really immersed in the culture and, you know, really tried to tell a story and collaborated with all of the, you know, all of the local talent to make that film. And it received wide praise for what it was. Yeah. Um, and so I, Asians represent is never about discouraging people from doing something uh, unless of course they're being racist right. yeah. <laughs> and awful. But um, the goal has always been to make people more aware of what they were doing and aware of the, the, you know, sort of the, the effects and the consequences of their actions and what they create. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm still waiting for our media moment, like for agents, you know how, like what, when, when I look at like mainstream cinema, I think two huge films out there that in my mind are like are perfect stories. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think of into the spider verse and I think of black Panther. Yeah. Um, both movies that I fit that I strongly believe are, you know, important parts of sort of this like North American media culture. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm still waiting for that, that Asian movie. Yeah. I'm curious. Cause I remember, I forget which episode it was, but I, well, I listened to one. Like I said, it did jump around a little bit. And yeah, no I worries. think at the time you had said you hadn't watched Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi yet. yet. Have you watched it? 
I I have not watched it in full yet. <laughs> um, so the re- there's a reason why yeah, there's I mean, a reason why I haven't watched it in full. Uh, w- one end, I'm like the kind of person who's like, don't tell me what to do. I'm gonna yeah, do it. For like, sure. I'm the same. Um, way. I'm like, I, I'm, everybody's making me watch. I I still haven't watched the Social Network. I haven't seen the King's Speech because yeah. everyone's like, oh, Oscar movies, you gotta. I'm like, no, no. don't tell me what yeah. to do. I'm not gonna watch it. Um, the same reason way. why I haven't watched it is because in my mind, I'm like. It's just another kung fu movie. Mm. Um, like I've seen like a good good chunk of it, yeah. and I've I've consumed enough media about it, and I'm fully aware of the character too. Like for the comics and stuff. Yeah. And for me, it's like I want to the Asian superhero movie I want to see is one where he doesn't have to go back to China to be a hero. That's a good point. Like, like I don't that that's 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 it for me like i love that tony lung got like so much attention because yeah. he's dude's a legend in yeah. asia like i grew up watching him mm-hmm. right so seeing him there is like for me is a reason alone to go and then michelle yo as well yeah, but for yeah, me it's like everybody's like ah oh, this is like our moment i'm like it doesn't to me it doesn't feel like that yeah. because again i don't want to be told that if i want to be a hero i have to go back to china to yeah. do it um or that oh uh yeah for, for me it's like you look at black and i because i compare the two shang chi and black panther and i'm like there are there are things that black panther does so incredibly well that shang chi just really doesn't mm-hmm. black panther with killmonger like michael b jordan's character yeah my mind is like kind of like the hero really <laughs> yeah if you, if you think about it right but there's that really nuanced story there about the diaspora and you know, Wakanda and how it's so like uh, reclusive mm-hmm. um, and tradition and and progress and technology and ownership of like this culture, yeah. right? And I, I I I want a story that does that. Same thing with like Into the Spider Verse. I think Into the Spider Verse is an incredible example of um, people embracing diversity in storytelling yeah because it's like does anybody has anybody ever said miles morales doesn't deserve to be spider-man no (laughs) yeah no because they told a really interesting and relatable story miles is just your average kid becomes a spider he's got you know he's got these parents that he's got to deal with everything about miles is relatable to people who are not um you know mixed yeah. Or, or, you know, from those different communities that Miles is is from, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I can't identify with some of the things that he goes through, but his day-to-day, the struggles that he has as like a like a, a, a teenager of color, I get. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I'm kind of waiting for that's why I'm really excited for Turning Red, um, that that new uh, uh, Pixar movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, also because it it portrays my city, Toronto. <laughs> and and you know the the creator of that domi she based it on her her tween years in toronto and so for me it's like that's a movie about me yeah and i really want to watch it and i have unbelievably high expectations yeah you know what movie also gave me that same kind of disappointment when it was supposed to make me feel better according to society was um i mean it's a kids movie but the princess and the frog uh, oh, okay. In the same way, because right, it's like it's uh, media is like, yeah, first black princess, and da 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 da, and then you watch it, and you're like, okay, she's technically not a princess, so you 
oh, there's the fake out. Yep. And then um, she's a frog the entire movie. Uh, she doesn't even get to yep. be herself. Um, and she um, is kind of like forced into this like romantic relationship with the, this guy that's, you know, destitute and trying to run away from his life. And, you know, it's, it's just such a weird um, – like there's like okay yeah you're giving me representation but it's like you're also taking away a lot of the things that you would give to uh, uh, any other white princess or whatever in that same situation. Yeah, I, I think uh, there I, I read a lot of very similar criticism over the movie Soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have this black character who then just gets turned into this like white yeah. ghost. They do it a lot. It's yeah, yeah. It's it's actually kind of surprising, um, or not surprising, I guess. But the, yeah, it's it is tough anytime with the representation, and and I I do kind of go back and forth with myself of like finding times where I'm just like I'm just excited to see these actors on screen getting paid, doing an amazing job. I'm just happy that we're here. Yeah, and then other times when it's like I look a little bit too deep into stuff, I'm like, damn it, this ruined yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like for for me. Like, Simu is like a Toronto guy, right? Like, mm-hmm. gotta gotta support him. Like, once that Shang Chi merch came out, you know, I went and bought some. <laughs> yeah. Like, I I gotta I gotta I gotta support. Um, but yeah, I feel the same way. It's like I'm happy that it exists. I'm yeah. happy these movies are out. I will support them. Um, but it doesn't mean that they are the answer to our problems, right? And it doesn't mean that we can't be critical of them. It doesn't mean that we can't ask for more. Yeah. Right, because if everybody was like, for instance, so like Shang Chi, Black Panther, Into the Spider Verse, that's it. We've we've peaked. Yeah, that's a depressing future because it means like we're never going to move beyond that. We're not going to get more. Yeah, like I want more stories. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's that's a big thing for me. I I I don't like it when we put like movies or particular games uh, make them monoliths. Right. Yeah, I think I mean I think all of that stuff is is always kind of up for critique, but it it really does come down to you know taking the time to like really analyze it, appreciate all the good that goes into it too, but then I think yeah, just really understanding like okay, well where can we improve? Where can we do this again with somebody else? Um you know, I I talked about it in the episode that came out this week um about like Pathfinder 2E made the Moenga Expanse uh, mm-hmm. source book it's an incredible book um and and in pathfinder when i talk to um you know uh, latin people or indigenous people it's like the representation there is like one picture maybe yeah and like a line you know um and it's very vague and it is like all indigenous people are this culture uh and that is your monolith and Please don't ask us for anything else. Now, that's not, you know, but it just like when you don't give us anything else, that's how it feels um, when that's all we can see. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like uh, you're like, we did it. It's here. Yeah. Right. Um, But it's important for people to speak up. Yeah. It's important for people to not only speak up and be critical. uh, Don't get me wrong, but also to speak up, be critical and provide solutions. Yeah. And then act with your dollars, too. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't know this by any means, but I feel like the next source book like that is going to be for, God, I can't remember. It's like Tian Sha. Tian Sha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what that I feel. One's a, that one's a, 
a very interesting setting in that it has a lot of the same problems yeah. as Oriental. Paizo, if you're listening, just hire Daniel, please. And then... So I, I, <laughs> I have I have worked for Paizo in the past. <laughs> no, but yeah, um, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, no, no, no. They, uh, it, it's got its own problems, right? Yeah. When you have a, a setting that's kind of rooted in these sort of like Orientalist tropes. Yeah. It's hard to provide them with an update without yeah. basically saying, hey, you know what? We're going to make something completely different. Yeah. Uh, is really inter- is weirdly interesting because it does some things better than Oriental Avengers in that it's not – some of it isn't like overtly racist. Like yeah. chopsticks are weapons and uh, – <laughs> right? Uh, like yeah. if you ever – if I walked in a room and be like, yo, my D&D character wields chopsticks and they do this much damage. I got it in a source book. You'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah. it's right here. It's, yep. it's real. <laughs> but I, I think Tian Sha also uh, suffers from a really common problem that a lot of fantasy settings inspired by like – that are like supposed to be coded as Asian do. Yeah. And it's that it, it blends everything. There's like samurai there and yeah. Tian Sha is like Chinese words. Um, yeah. there's like you got samurai and it, it's, yeah it, it's it, there's a there's a problem there but it's that missing. said you know me saying that there's a problem is half of half of the battle right i need to say hey here's why it's wrong and here's a solution yeah and i, and I think you know with your with your time on twitter there's a lot of people saying this is wrong not yeah. this is wrong and here's what you could do yeah or this is wrong and here's what i've done yeah um maybe check it out right well i mean um, the thing with twitter um is that sometimes you say this is wrong and here's the solution and then because of the fandom people still go and people flame you yeah like yeah with quarter, critical uh, role Isa. yeah yeah that was i was actually talking about that with one of my coworkers today wow. uh, who was who was like a critical role fan it was like new way I, I do ttrpg stuff it was like hey like can you tell me more about like the like the community. And I was like, let me tell you. Um, and it's, it's, yeah. I mean, critical roles fandom is, it's a unique thing because there's nothing else really like it yeah. in tabletop RPGs. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is a unique phenomenon. Yeah, for sure. Well, like the idea, like I think about this, like they get 60,000 concurrent viewers or whatever on, on Twitch. Right. And then they do reruns, which I'm sure, thousands of people watch and they have a podcast which is like consistently rated in the top five on chartable like so you're talking about people who are listening to it at least twice in a lot of cases yeah uh, like that's insane you've you've got it you've got to just to absorb everything yeah like it for me it's like i don't have four hours in my week to do that no yeah you're a, you're a parent i'm not even a parent <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, I barely get the hours I need to do this show, let alone yeah. sit down and watch a four-hour Critical Role show. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. But that – and I don't want to like beat a dead horse because you guys have talked about it elegantly no on your show. But like I think that the the idea that you could have all of that, that entire audience, like have enough people around you to say like, hey, don't do this. Like have thousands of people being like, hey – be careful when you go into Marquette, like here are some implications and then still do what they did. Um, it's, it's so baffling. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you, you always want to assume positive intent. Yeah. And I mean, they certainly, 
they certainly try their best. Um, I think one of the things is that it, it, it's it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah, right? it's okay to make mistakes because if you don't fail, you're not trying, right? Yep. Um, but if you're making mistakes, you need to show how you're trying to improve. Yeah. And on one end, you know, they can't control their fans as well. Like nobody can control True. their fans, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think with the with with Iza, Iza pointed out something like that was 100% correct. Yeah. Um and yeah, what they did was wrong and I'm certain that they learned from it. But on the other end there's also the fans who are like how dare you? They are infallible. <laughs> and it's not really on the critical role folks either. It's 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 kind of this um it's the fan base basically saying, "Hey, look, like I love this thing." And this is this is a something I also want to talk about with Oriental Adventures. It's like, "Hey, I love this thing." If you're telling me that this thing is bad, you're telling me I'm a bad person. Right. And it's the same thing with Oriental Adventures. It's like, hey, th- this thing is kind of racist. Yeah. And at times really racist. Yeah. And a lot of people took that as, how dare you? I grew up on that. This is this is the reason why I love Asian culture. Are you yeah. telling me that <laughs> I'm, a, I'm actually a racist? <laughs> and – that's kind of what happens w- with fandoms, right? Yeah. Um, anything that we really like, it becomes a part of our identity. And when people critique it, we feel like that that is a personal critique of the yeah. choices that we make. There are tons of things that we like that everyone likes that that is that is deeply problematic. I was literally having a conversation with some folks about this, and we were talking about Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about Tropic Thunder and like – Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic yeah, Thunder, yeah. right? And we we're like, there are so many things in Tropic Thunder that just don't hold up. Yeah. But like, there are still some things we can laugh at. Like yeah. Tom Cruise in that movie was—he was great <laughs> yeah. uh, in that movie. And I was talking about how you know that movie doesn't hold up. Or for me, one example I always talk about is The Office. I'm a huge fan of The Office, mm-hmm. um, both the American and the UK versions. Both are. <laughs> deeply problematic in their own rights for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. But like, I love the office stuff that I drove to Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, like, and I watched the office multiple times a year, all nine seasons. I'm a huge fan. Um, like a buddy of mine told, announced that he was him and his wife were having a baby by sending me a screenshot from the office because I knew the episode and what was going on in that scene. Um, wow. Like I'm a big fan, but I know it's a flawed show. I know that a lot of the humor there is, it's just, it's not, you know, doesn't fit our current climate. Yeah. Like I know that the humor there is deeply disrespectful to to uh, people who who aren't like me. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I can I can acknowledge that and I can enjoy the show for what it is. Um, and if I hear a critique of it and it's something that I've never heard before or acknowledged, I need to understand that that's not a critique of me. That's just a learning opportunity. Yeah. And sure, that like tells me, yeah, another thing in this piece of media that I like, yeah, th- this isn't right. This isn't, you know, right and shouldn't be made like this again. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that that I'm a bad person for consuming it. Right. Um, and, and that's something we see a lot of in fandoms across the board, TTRBGs like Critical Role, Oriental Adventures, or even video games and, you know, movies, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you see it a lot too in anime. Like anime is like, 
very sexist sometimes. Yep. Um, or also like weirdly over sexualizes children. And um, yeah, and I mean, millions of people consume it and enjoy it. And yeah, we'll and, fight and over I mean, it, you know? <laughs> a, a lot of like, and then anime itself is, is another interesting one because a, a lot of the, the things that they portray are often rooted in. Uh, things that are uniquely Japanese that we don't understand. Yeah. Uh, for instance, like Card Captor Sakura. Uh, there are like the Japanese versions. Uh, the Japanese version of Card Captor Sakura is fundamentally different from yeah. the censored American version that we got. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things, because like, I remember my my partner was watching it, and I was like, "What? I've never seen that." And she just like pulling up an article explaining like the cultural dynamics of why this relationship makes sense. The story is like. I have got my judging eyes here and I'm just like, yeah. what? Yeah. So yeah, anime is an interesting one because it's like, it's made in Japan for a Japanese audience mm -hmm. and then, but then consumed in the West by people who may not be aware of a lot of the unwritten social rules or the cultural um, elements there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, it's, it's another example of why we need to kind of step back, pause, have a thought about what we're being critical of and see if we are right to be critical of something. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely good advice for everyone in almost every situation, uh, especially anytime you're going out into society. And, yeah, right? <laughs> it's like kind of maybe stop and pause yeah, before just, you say something. You probably don't need to. It's probably going to be fine. That's that's honestly, that's my Twitter policy. I'll yeah. write a tweet and I'll be like, do I need to hit tweet? Nah, yeah. X, and then I'm gone. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It's, it's yeah, 99% of the time, it's really not worth it. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think that kind of leads me to how did you get into, um, you know, consulting on, on culture yeah. and sensitivity and, and doing game design stuff? Yeah. Um, good question. How did I? <laughs> um because it's just like people always pop up and like, I am a cultural consultant. I'm like, how did you get there? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, there is no there is no degree right. to make you a cultural consultant. There is no certification that says, I am a cultural consultant. Yeah. Um, for for me, it's the fact that, you know, I have a, uh, a you know, like I have a bachelor's degree in, in anthropology and I have a master's degree in Japanese archaeology and yeah. I did six years of a doctorate on Chinese archaeology. I lived in China. Yeah. Uh, I am, I am of the Chinese diaspora. Yeah. Um, for, for me, it's like a lot of people think, Oh, you're Asian. You're a cultural consultant. Can you work on this Japanese thing? I'm like, well, I'm not that kind of Asian. <laughs> right. um, come on. Um, for me, I, I only work on things that are, if I'm as a cultural consultant, mm -hmm. Chinese. Yeah. Um, Likewise, if it's for sensitivity work, it would be related to my experience as like a member of the diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very particular with the work that I take on, and I realize that's a luxury that I have because I have a, a good day job. Yeah. Um, but for me, I think it's also the morally right thing to do. Yeah. Because I want I want to make sure that I'm working on things that I would want to see out there, and if people were looking at that, I want people to say okay daniel kwan he was a cultural consultant on this project yeah this makes sense mm -hmm. um that's what i want to see now in terms of like getting into designing and all that it actually started back in the museum okay. um when i was at the museum we were 
2016. Uh, remember it. Where, where are, you, are you based in the States? Yeah, I'm in New Mexico. Oh, okay, cool. So uh, in November for us, we have like November 11th for us is Remembrance Day. It's okay. kind of like our uh, – I don't know. Memorial it's like the day. To, it's kind of like our Memorial Day for World War One, okay. specifically. Okay. And uh, I wanted, you know, it fell on a Saturday, uh, which was the day I was running a weekend program at the museum for for tabletop RPGs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I want to teach my students about World War One, but I want to use an RPG to do it. Yeah. And so I went and I was looking for World War One RPGs and a lot of that stuff, and there was really nothing that was strictly World War One or would allow me to talk about the Canadian experience. Yeah. And so me and two of my staff members, we were like, well, what if we just wrote our own game? And we drafted a Powered by the Apocalypse hack okay. about being a Canadian soldier in World War One. Yeah. And our first big play test was with 30 of my students. And wow. we had um, six groups of five run by eight different my staff members and each of them were playing a squad during the <laughs> battle of Vimy Ridge. And wow. it was really cool. Yeah. And um, that ended up being the first game that I ever published uh, as a creator. Yeah. Uh, we kickstarted it. We ended up actually going to the Canadian war museum. And uh, because of we all, the three of us who worked, who created the project, all were museum professionals. Two of us are archaeologists. Yeah. They were like, yeah, you can come to the armory. And we went to the armory at the museum and handled all the guns and got like a real intimate experience there. Yeah. And we wrote a game about not only the Cana- specifically Canadian experience in World War One, but there's an entire section on the people of color who fought in World War One. Yeah. When you look at like World War One media, you often only see white people. Uh, but in Canada, a lot of different communities of color participated in that conflict. And we are very purposeful with putting a lot of information about like the Chinese Canadians, the Japanese Canadians, the black Canadians, the indigenous peoples who fought in that conflict, um, and encourage people to make sure that their stories included that real diversity that was actually a part of this conflict. And, um, that was my first independent project. And because of my background as like an archaeologist and because of Asians Represent, a lot of people reached out asking to uh, work on little projects. Yeah. Um, the uh, first first uh, thing that I ever, um, what was it? Uh, it was a 7th C project. Um, they reached out to me being like, hey, can you work on this? Things ended up happening and they didn't have money to pay me. Mm-hmm. So um, the stuff that I ended up writing because I was very eager yeah. um, ended up being Dungeons and Asians. Okay. Um, so Dungeons and Asians almost ended up being a seventh C thing. So I'm really happy that it didn't because yeah. it's yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, From there, you know, I just kind of started working on little projects, built, built up a little reputation. And um, then the D&D thing happened. Uh, yeah. But prior prior to that, I had done a lot of like independent work um, with Ross Rifles, which was the World War One game, mm-hmm. um, and a handful of like small indie games and some essays and things like that. Yeah. Uh, after Candlekeep, Candlekeep was actually actually happened just before that pandemic ha- started. Okay. Um, I started working on that. The uh, I signed the contract December 2019, and, yeah. and then. January 2020 started working, and then obviously stuff happened. <laughs> the world was lit a fi- uh, lit a flame. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was a really interesting experience there. And since Candlekeep, I've worked on you know a lot of big projects. Worked for Paizo, worked on Avatar, um, and I'm currently work. I'm working on Into the Motherlands. That one is a really interesting experience for me because awesome. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Chinese guy on that team. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, and uh, it's because Tanya and I had had worked together on another project, and Tanya asked me to come on to Motherlands, and I said. Wait, <laughs> me? <laughs> um, Tanya's like, yeah, yeah, you. And I was like, okay, I have some conditions. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, my, my conditions to come out of the Motherlands were, um, you want to bring me on for game design and mechanical things? I'm a-okay to do that. Yeah. But I do not want to touch anything world-related or character-related because that is not my story to tell. Yeah. Um. And I was very specific about that. I only want to be credited for somebody who worked on mechanics. I want nothing to do with the world because I don't want to be perpetuating the same thing that I'm telling people not to do with Asians represent. Yeah. And so my why was, why am I working on this? Because they wanted me for my expertise on the the math rocks and how the dice work. (laughs) Um, they're not asking me for this other stuff. And so I feel okay doing it. And I was very upfront with that discomfort. Yeah. And Tanya was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, being there and kind of being very purposeful about like sitting and just like listening and allowing everyone else to speak and then kind of offering my input has been a really interesting experience because uh, I've really liked it yeah. because I get to learn from my peers and I get to learn from these amazing creators uh, and seeing what they do. and. Um, I'm honestly, Motherlands has been one of the most educational projects I've worked on. Um, just because for me, I feel like I've grown a lot as a creator during that. Yeah. I've deeply invested in its success. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's so incredible. And I think that's such a great thing when it comes to into the Motherlands of like the fact that they are working to get different kinds of POCs involved in the project. Yep. And not, like you said, not always in the world building, but just in general, just to have more eyes on it so that we're not doing those things. Like, I mean, like we talked about earlier in the episode, you know, I grew up pretty aware of, of a lot of racial things, but still had my own uh, biases that I was unaware of. Uh, Everybody's going to have them. Yeah. And so it's, it's so important. And, you, you know, I had uh, B. Dave on. Oh, B Dave is so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had him on the show, and he, that was something he talked about of just like, you know, understanding. I might look at something this way, and somebody else is going to look at it and go, "Okay, but what about this?" And and that "what about this" is such an important question because it it then is one more layer of like protecting the audience before we put this project out and we can't take it back and can't, you know, <laughs> before yep. you have a, a Marvel Pocahontas moment. No. Oh. <laughs> so yeah it's uh yeah mudlands is cool like b b dave is is a really cool person like i've yeah. always wanted to like work with them and i was just like how do i make that happen and, it, and it, then it happened and i was like this is <laughs> yeah this is really cool yeah i mean that whole yeah that whole group is is uh is amazing it's it's such a great thing i think for you know people of color in general to see that level of representation of of you know people who are out there like doing a very successful thing like getting a lot of attention um building a product that's you know already amazing and it's in its current form and and is going to be amazing once it's done and it's like 
it's just such it's such a cool thing for the yeah, TTRPG I community. mean, imagine all of the kids who are going to be able to go to a store mm. and see the cover to Into the Motherlands and be like, oh, that's me. Yeah. Like you look on social media and you see all those kids who are watching Encanto and yeah. they see like, oh, that's me. I'm yeah. like, that's cool. Like I actually had a, a buddy of mine um, who I played Magic the Gathering with. Uh, he's white and his his wife is Chinese mm-hmm. and the kids are mixed. Yeah. And he sent me a picture of his kids at um, a game store and they were holding Candlekeep Mysteries and they were like, they saw my name in it and they were like, yeah, that's Mr. Kwan. Like yeah. that's his thing. And I actually ran the adventure for them, um, wow. for him and his kids. And, um, but he was like, yeah, they got to feel seen yeah. in, in their game store. Yeah. Which is something that I want, I want everyone to be able to do, not just like Asian people. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's important. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that is so cool. It's, I mean, especially to get your name in a book. Uh, I think anybody who's ever like wanted to write something that that's, you know, that was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. That was the goal. So it's so cool that I, I love the idea now as a person who's kind of new to TTRPG writing and things like that. Like, I love the idea now of like, oh yeah, there's this other element where I can add two things that I love together because I love writing and I love games, but like growing up, I never thought I can make those things happen as one, one thing. And now it's like, yeah, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> it's really possible. Yeah, it's hundred percent possible. And I mean, like it's easy, it's, it's easy. It's so easy now to do your own thing, yeah. right? DMs guild, drive through RPG, itch.io. Yeah. Like it is so easy to publish your own thing and just put it out into the world for people to see. Making yeah. money is a, is a whole other thing, <laughs> right. but like yeah. putting it out there is such an easy thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Do you have, um, and you don't have to like go into details if you do, but like, do you have a, like a big game you want to do? Have that, has uh, that like crossed your mind? Like to make? Like, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes, I do. Um, I have like a couple of professional goals that I haven't accomplished yet. Yeah. Um, one, I it's a recent goal. I really want to work on a Magic the Gathering product. Yeah. Uh, mostly because I got really into Magic recently, <laughs> and um, yeah, always wanted to work on that. Um, that's a recent goal for me. I, I've actually been slowly working at it. Um, I want to. I want to properly publish a campaign setting. Yeah. Um, but I want to do it in a way where it's very functional and easy to use i don't want to publish a book full of fluff yeah i want to publish a book where every word i put in there is usable for Mm -hmm. a person and educational at the same time yeah um so i'm slowly working on that um it's the world that this upcoming dungeons and asians adventure is going to be in it's what my home game is set in um I I have written quite a bit of it and am currently in the process of just trying to figure out, well, how do I want to present this information to the reader? Yeah. Um, I, I put out like a, a teaser for it um, called Paradise Mountain. Mm-hmm. It's like a micro setting. Yeah. Uh, and that is like a, a very specific section and a preview of a part of the world yeah. um, in a format that I want that is like, again, easily accessible. Um, I want it. I want somebody to be able to open it and know exactly what a part of the world is and what this character looks like and how they speak, what their intentions are without having to comb through pages and pages. Yeah. Um, that's my goal. Uh, 
again, I'm constantly working at it. So I think I'm going to accomplish it. Um, in general, if I set out to do something with the exception of my PhD, um, <laughs> I finish it. <laughs> yeah. That's a, um, hey, that's a lofty task. So, but yeah, that, that's my, that, those are my sort of two professional goals. One is like very much in my control and the other is not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one other thing I want to ask you, you early in the early episodes, you talked about picking up the handler's guide for Delta green. Yes. So, uh, do you still play Delta green and did that at all influence your writing in Candlekeep mysteries? Uh, Delta, um, the answer for Delta green influence in Candlekeep mysteries. No, not at all. Oh, wow. uh, okay. for me, it was just like, because Delta green is a, is a modern game about cosmic horror. Right. Right. Yeah. And like Candlekeep mysteries is very much like, like kung fu sort of magic mm -hmm. um i definitely for me it was like just straight up listening to the wu-tang and watching shaw brothers movies was <laughs> was uh candlekeep mysteries for me how i don't i'm not playing delta green right now because the dm for the delta green game that i have is currently a player in my DD game oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we played delta green every saturday during 2020 there's yeah. a lot of Delta Green. Yeah. I went through four characters. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's, My yeah. character just kept dying. It's, um, it's not hard. In that game. Tw tw but twice, twice by my by allies, friendly fire. Oh, no. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I had a really good time playing Delta Green, um, more so than like playing a game like Call of Cthulhu. I don't yeah. really, I'm not a Lovecraft guy. Yeah. Um, but the thing with Delta Green that I thought was interesting was that like I didn't have to think it was Lovecraft. Right. Um, and because I don't know anything about Lovecraft, the characters that I played in Delta Green were always like, oh, I don't know what's happening. Because yeah. that's Daniel. I don't know what's <laughs> yeah. happening. And so it was, I could stay in character really easily. Yeah. Um, I can't talk about it now, but I am working on something that was um, very much influenced by why I liked Delta Green. Yeah. Uh, but awesome. unfortunately, I can't talk about yeah. it now. No, hey, I got you. Uh, as much as I want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I feel the same way. Like the, uh, I've talked about it before, but like the 1920s Lovecraft Call of Cthulhu setting has never appealed to me. I don't um, get it. Except for yeah. Harlem Unbound. Except for except Harlem Unbound. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and, I didn't learn about and, that. Ha and Haunted West. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Which I worked on. Yeah. Um, I know they're playing it right now. I usually watch on Tuesdays. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you. It just uh, yeah, that, no, I get. It. I, I don't know if you've if if you've seen that show or if you're familiar with like who uh, Trooper SJP is. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, DMing it on Roll Twenty, and uh, it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, um, I think Harlow Bell's the only only time I'll touch that time period. Yeah. Yeah. And that sure. that that theme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a little bit tough to get into otherwise. But I mean, Delta Green, um, it's more accessible. Like you said, it's more accessible, and it's modern, and you can just like, yeah, you have a cell phone, like you can Google stuff on your mission, and like, you know, like uh, we use Google, we use Google, Google Maps, and Google Earth for, yeah. for when we were yeah, playing. Same, same. <laughs> and it's and it's cool because um, I also had a really good like um, GM because my GM is a professional cartographer. Oh wow! Um, the maps that he made are were bad because <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to put effort into this. I'm not okay getting paid. Yeah, um, that's fair. Uh, shout out to Mark, uh, slave <laughs> to the hat on Twitter. He <laughs> uh, and he a winning cartographer. He did the wow. maps for Seventh C and a uh, whole bunch of, and Ross rifles actually in my game. Yeah, um, one of my best friends. But uh, yeah, he uh, he's he he ran a really cool game that that were all set in American national parks. Oh wow! Um, yeah. and because there's so much cartography data. 
Yeah. Um, and so it was a really cool and immersive experience for me. I learned a lot about American national parks, <laughs> uh, having never been to one. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot about Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Delta Three was interesting because I don't have to think about weeding out the racism of like the 1920s. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's racism in the 2022s. Right. Um, but I, uh, it's modern, it's relatable. And it's also like, if I just want to be a military commando and fail at gunning down monsters, I could do that without having to think about Lovecraft. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, that is super cool. Well, yeah, I won't uh, take up too much more of your time, but um, no this, is, this has been absolutely uh, incredible to have you on. Um, I really am a huge fan of the show um, and I'm excited to see what y'all do with it next and, and you know, just kind of get into the other things that you're getting into. So this is, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, yeah, no problem. I mean, thanks for reaching out. When, when I can talk about the thing that I'm working on, I'm happy to pick up this conversation. If, yeah, if you just, just, just let me know. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show, and if you like, leave a review to help us grow this thing. 